Well, good morning. My name's Matt. Um, I'm one of the pastors here at the church. I get the opportunity this morning, the blessing to preach the word. Uh, typically, like I said, I stand behind a guitar. So we'll see how this goes. If I break out in song, I apologize in advance. Um, it hopefully won't happen. So we're going to be in Luke again. We're going to get back into our series in Luke. and We're going to finish up chapter 17. So we're going to be in verse 20 this morning. And as we finish out chapter 17, uh, we're coming into the end of Luke. We've been in it for a couple of years now, um, and so we'll be um, moving towards the end. We've got about eight chapters left, I believe, and so uh, we'll be moving that direction, all right? So uh, Luke 17, verse 20 is where we're going to be this morning. So would you read with me uh, all the way through the end of the chapter to verse 37? It says this, being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them, the kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed, Nor will they say, look, here it is, or there. For behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. And he said to the disciples, the days are coming when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. And they will say to you, look there, or look here. Do not go out or follow them. For as the lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will the Son of Man be in his day. But first, he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. Just as it was in the days of Noah, so will it be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot. They were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building But on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained down from heaven and destroyed them all. So will it be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, let the one who is on the housetop with his goods in the house not come down to take them away. And likewise, let the one who is in the field not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life will keep it. I tell you, in that night there will be two in one bed. One will be taken and the other left. There will be two women grinding together. One will be taken and the other left. And he said to them, and they said to him, sorry, and they said to him, where, Lord? He said to them, where the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. Would you pray with me and just ask that God's word will work in our hearts this morning uh, as we hear it. Lord Jesus, we pray over your word this morning and ask that as we hear from it, would we be uh, rightfully repentant as we hear it convict us of sin and point out the ways in which we do not see you as king and lord of our life. And would you help us to celebrate as well as we see the ways in which you're moving and working and desiring to see your kingdom come forth in our life. May we celebrate correctly. Would you help us to submit ourselves to your word this morning and not look to lord ourselves over it, but instead be under it as we hear it preached. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so how many of you, like me, enjoy going to the movies uh, with the, the type of movie where there's this twist ending, right? This, this surprise ending that you're, you're not really expecting, don't see coming, right? Uh, I think Christopher Nolan actually probably does the best job at this. Um, I 
highly recommend many of his movies. Interstellar, it, it's a marathon, but it's a great movie, right? And there's this twist ending at the end that you're just not expecting, right? And, and one of his other movies that's actually one of my favorites is called The Prestige, right? Um, so it's a few years old, so I'm just going to throw out there, there's some spoiler alerts coming, but it's old enough that I feel like I can do this. So um, it's about two magicians, right? Hugh Jackman and Christian Bale, and they're looking to outdo one another in tricks, Right, And they're, they're trying to outperform one another. And so each trick gets a little bit crazier and a little bit more impossible and a little bit grander on the scale. Right, Until Christian Bale does a trick where he stands in a wardrobe, closes a door, and seemingly appears across the stage out of the other wardrobe in a matter of seconds. Right, And so Hugh Jackman, this other magician that's trying to beat him, cannot figure out how in the world he's doing this. No matter what he does, he can't figure out how it's happening. And so what you find out is that he goes and has this machine built, and seemingly this machine all of a sudden allows him to do the same, where he appears on stage, there's a flash of lightning and, and electricity, and he's up on the balcony all of a sudden, right? And so in your mind, as, as these tricks are just building and getting greater and more impossible, man, you're just getting drawn in. You're to the edge of your seat, right? Like there's this anticipation of what is going to come next. How are they actually doing this? Is, you know, it's a movie, so you're asking the questions of like, is this really magic? Like, is this dude performing real magic here? And so you kind of get drawn in, and you're, you're waiting to find out what happens. And you get to the very end, and here's the spoiler alert. You find out that Christian Bale actually wasn't performing magic, but just had an identical twin. Right? And, and Hugh Jackman, the machine he built, is not creating magic, but creating clones. And uh, the original magician just dies at the beginning, or the end of every one of those tricks. Right, and the clone is sent up to the balcony. So while the rest of this whole movie is just awesome and, and building up to this thing, I, I, I have to say, the ending is great, but when you find out that, it's just a tad disappointing. Right, because in your heart, in your mind, you're just looking for the impossible, the otherworldly, this unimaginable thing to happen, and what actually it is is just biology, and maybe a little science. And so it kind of falls flat for me. The rest of the movie is great, but just that reality is not what I was expecting or wanting out of that. How many of you guys have ever been to a movie that had maybe a lot of hype or a restaurant? That's a big thing around here. Big hype about a restaurant, and you show up and you're like, that was not what I was expecting. Just didn't quite meet up to the expectation that I had right? Or maybe, let's get a, a little bit more personal in real life. Maybe this has happened to you, you, you got married, right? And you're a few years in and you married this man or this woman that you thought would just, it was just going to be awesome, right? You cannot wait for marriage and what it's going to bring. And now you're a few years in or maybe more than just a few years and it's, it's just not quite as exciting as you thought it was going to be. There's bills to be paid, and the house needs worked on all the time, plus we got to go to our jobs. Maybe there's kids thrown into the mix, and everything seems to just exhaust us as we get there to the end of the night and are looking to spend time with our husband or wife. It just doesn't meet up to our expectation. It falls a little flat. 
Or maybe, maybe you found this job and you're like, oh, this is, this is it. The culture is awesome. They have places for us to nap. There's games. There's things, you know, the, the coworkers are fun. The boss seems to just be super laid back. This is the one that's going to go the distance. This is the one that's not only going to pay my bills, but give me all the money that I need to go on vacation and to do the things that I want to do. And you get into it and you find out that the boss is maybe more of a micromanager than you care to admit. And it gets frustrating. And your coworkers, man, they just will not stop complaining about how much work they have to do. And you're like, you know, don't you know how much I have to do? And so it begins to fall flat and the expectation doesn't really match up. I mean, you can play this scenario and the situation over and over again. And I think we can find ourselves, whether it be in relationships or in work or, or in our marriages or in parenting, wherever it's at, what we tend to find is that what we expected doesn't quite match up with what we thought was going to happen. Because I've done all of this work. You know, I lived a good life. I've tried to control and govern my life well tried to love people well. I tried to work really hard. I tried to put all of these things together so that my life would work out like it's supposed to. And yet, no matter how much I try, no matter how many pieces I try to control and put together, it just doesn't seem to happen like I expect. My plans don't work out like I want them to work out. I think that's where we find the Pharisees and the disciples here in Luke 17 in regards to the kingdom of God as they come with these questions. Because Jesus was supposed to be this Messiah, right? That came and, and ushered in the kingdom, that brought the kingdom of God that they were expecting. Because he hadn't exactly been quiet about the fact that he was this guy, right? In Luke, just in the 17 chapters we've gone through, the word kingdom, Luke scribes down, 29 times that it happened so far, just in these 17 chapters, and 26 of those come directly from the mouth of Jesus as he's declaring the kingdom is coming in me, right? In fact, he even says at the beginning of Luke that when he came, his purpose was to proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God. He wasn't exactly quiet about the fact that that's what he had come to do, is bring it and usher it in, Right? So why wasn't this happening? I mean, even John the Baptist, his cousin, this guy who had baptized him as the Lamb of God, said that this is a guy that's coming to usher in the kingdom, sends people to Jesus and is like, are you actually this guy? Like, I, I'm confused. Things aren't really matching up. Are you really the Messiah that was promised? And so... So there's all this confusion about Jesus, right? Why is it that nobody seems to be able to really understand what Jesus was there to do? He said he was there to bring the kingdom, but everybody else seems to not be able to see that. And so I would ask, why? Why are they unable to see the kingdom of God that Jesus is ushering in? And I think what Jesus shows us today and tells us today in his word is that they were looking for the wrong thing. They just had their eyes set on the wrong thing. And I know it seems really simple to say that, but imagine that you had set up your life to look a specific way, that you had spent your whole life given to seeing these signs come to, to pass so that you would know the Messiah had finally come, that you would know this good thing was happening to your people, that you would finally be freed from the Roman government and oppression that was, that was coming to you, right? You would finally get to set up your own king, the king you wanted on your throne to rule and reign over your people. 
seems like a really good thing. But Jesus didn't seem to care a whole lot about overthrowing the Roman government. In fact, he liked to spend a lot more time with outcasts, like the lepers who we saw a few verses earlier that he went to heal, or the prostitutes who probably weren't going to do a whole lot politically or militarily in the government, right? He seems to like to spend a lot of time healing people, casting out demons, talking about repentance. This dude doesn't seem to care anything about the kingdom of God that they were looking for, the kingdom of God that they were expecting. In fact, he even had tax collectors. They were these Jews that were totally fine with the Roman government in his 12 disciples hanging out with him all the time. It just isn't matching up. This, this king that's supposed to come and usher in this kingdom is not ushering in a kingdom that looks anything like we expected. In fact, it seems to be going the opposite way. Nothing seems to be adding up. It's falling flat. But I think Jesus and his answer to the Pharisees and then his further explanation to the disciples in this chapter speak of a different kingdom. What I would say is a better kingdom, a greater kingdom. Kingdom. In fact, I think what Jesus has been showing them and telling them about is a kingdom that is greater than any kingdom we could expect or imagine. Because it isn't a kingdom of our own determining, of our own making, of our own putting together. But it's God's kingdom. And it's found specifically and particularly in the work and the person of his son Jesus. I think that's what he's showing us today. So I think there's three ways in which God's kingdom is greater than the one they expected that Jesus shows us today. And you can see the first one there in verses 20 through 21, right? Uh, you look at the very beginning of that. It says in Jesus' response to the Pharisees as they ask him, when is the kingdom coming? Jesus, when is this kingdom coming? He says, the kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed. Nor will they say, look, here it is, or there. For behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. Jesus is telling them, the kingdom you are looking for absolutely could be seen. It would be something where you could physically go, there it is, I see it. Look, behold, there it is. If that's the kingdom that, that he was bringing, that, that the one they expected, then absolutely they'd be able to see it. But Jesus says that the kingdom of God, the one that he was bringing in and ushering in, was not that kind of kingdom. Right? If you, if you read in the Psalms, it says in Psalm 24, 1, The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. Or Psalm 89, 11 says, The heavens are yours, the earth also is yours, the world and all that is in it. You have founded them. Jesus wasn't looking to bring God's political rule and arm to stretch it further over the earth. The earth was already his. Everything that already existed in the world was his. He wasn't looking to rule over a place. He was looking to rule in a people. That's what Jesus came to usher in as a kingdom that was meant to rule and reign in the hearts of a people. Right? You could even hear it in the covenant that he makes with his people Israel in Exodus 19.5. It says this, just, just listen to this. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant... You shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. The kingdom of God wasn't coming first as a physical kingdom for a specific place and nation, but instead, the kingdom of God is a spiritual one for all places and all peoples. 
Jesus wasn't coming to free the Israelites from Rome. He was coming to free them from their sin. They were living in the kingdom of darkness, of Satan, and he was coming to bring them into the kingdom of his rule, his reign, the kingdom of his beloved son. That's what Colossians tells us happens in the gospel. The kingdom of God is the greater kingdom because it isn't bound to a place or a political power, but is accessible to all by the person and the work of Jesus Christ. For the Pharisees, the kingdom of God involved them and their own interests and their national interests, right? Politically, it involved their freedom and their enjoyment. They were not concerned in the slightest about the Gentiles or the Samaritans. In fact, if you read the New Testament, they didn't like them at all. They wanted pretty much nothing to do with those people. Entrance and acceptance into the kingdom they wanted they expected was based on your nationality, upon your bloodline, upon your lineage, right? That's, that's what mattered to them. But God's kingdom, Jesus said, includes all peoples from all places, and entrance into it is based upon the grace and the work of Jesus Christ. It's kind of crazy to think, though, that today, thousands of years later, it's pretty easy to see the similarities between the Pharisees' line of thinking and the line of thinking today. But all we have to do is Let's look to Charlottesville, right? Just a week earlier, and we can see my kingdom only involves people that look like me, that act like me. That's the place that I want to be. That's the place that matters. And before, man, before I get too quick to condemn others or, or make that call upon others, I, I just ask the question that I ask myself this week as I read this and thought about this. Who would our lives and our actions say we would not want or welcome into the kingdom? And I qualify that with actions as well because I think we would quickly say, oh, I absolutely want everybody in there. Like, that would be totally mean if I said I didn't want somebody in the kingdom of God, right? But would we want or welcome a white supremacist into the kingdom of God? If he believed in Christ, if he believed in the king, which is the only criteria set before us to enter the kingdom, would we be okay with going and, and loving that white supremacist enough to say, Jesus loves you, would you find yourself under his rule and his reign? Or what about the person that has just done you so much wrong or hurt or has been evil and malicious, has said terrible things about you or your family or people that you know, and you just cannot forgive them? You want nothing to do with them. Would you want or welcome them into the kingdom of God? Or do they need to live up to some expectation that we have of what people are supposed to look like before they can enter into the kingdom? We were not welcomed into the kingdom of God based on our likableness or our upstanding character. We were not welcomed in based on our right decisions or ideology or theology. We were not welcomed in based on anything about us other than our belief in the one who had done everything. We were welcomed in based on the life and the righteousness of Jesus Christ upon the king. And so when we ask people to live up to some expectation or standard before they're allowed into the kingdom of God, it's like saying to a sick person, you need to get well before you come to the hospital. Right? Jesus said, I didn't come for the righteous, but I came for the sick. And so when we ask people to get well before they actually get made well, we've got the cart before the horse. 
The kingdom of God has not come for those who are well, but for the sick. That was us. That is them. That is the world. That is all of humanity. We need Jesus Christ to make us well. None of us belong in the kingdom. None of us deserve to be in the kingdom. But Jesus has been gracious enough to give us that opportunity. To give us that kind of life. In the kingdom of God, there are no boundaries. There are no barriers to those who can be welcomed in the kingdom other than belief in the king. The king is who matters, which brings us to the second way that we see how the kingdom of God is the greater kingdom, and that's because it's ruled by a greater kind of king. And I say kind of king because I don't want us to to get in our minds that we understand what kingship looks like because of what we've seen and how we see kings act. Jesus totally breaks the mold when it comes to being king. He is a better and greater king in every single regard, right? As we move on into verses 22 uh, through 37, I hope, I hope you noticed a couple things in the language as it was written and spoken. It, one thing that we, we should notice is that while Jesus tells the Pharisees that the kingdom is in their midst, present here now, right? It's, it's here with you. In verses 22 through 37, all of a sudden, the kingdom is a kingdom that is still to come, right? There in verse 22, he says, the days are coming. So which is it, right? That should bring a question, which is it? Is it in our midst or is it coming? And I would say, yes. I hope that clears that up for you a whole lot. Yes, it is here and it is coming, right? And this is the way the New Testament speaks about the kingdom of God because while Christ absolutely did usher in the kingdom as he was born, he brought the kingdom into our midst What we know now today and what the Pharisees and and the disciples were missing is that that Christ was coming again. That while his rule was being brought in by Jesus in his death and his resurrection and his ascension, we now await his second coming when he will make his rule final. When he will make everything new. When he will bring it all underneath his rule and his reign. And so yes, the kingdom of God is here and began with the birth of Christ. But now we await the second coming of Christ where it will be brought in full. You'll see that over and over. This already not yet mentality in the New Testament. But the second thing to note as we get into these verses is that Jesus stops referring to the kingdom of God and his rule as the kingdom of God but instead begins referring to it as the son, the days of the son of man, right? Now, he's not talking about two different things. He's just changing the language because I think what he's trying to do is make the point is that while they may talk about it as the kingdom of God, he wants to absolutely and completely tie the reality of the kingdom of God to himself as the son of man, right? That's a title that he uses for himself over and over and over again in the New Testament. It's, it's this man that was prophesied about in Daniel 7, right? We read it as we went through our, our pastoral prayer, but I want to read it again. This is the son of man, right? Daniel prophesies about. He says this, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. There he is. And he came to the ancient of days, and that's speaking of the father, and was presented before him. And to him, the Son of Man was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. Points back to the last point. All peoples, all nations, everyone should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. 
and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Right? Jesus here, as in other times in the Gospels, is tying this prophecy and this title to himself. The one who is to be given dominion and glory and the kingdom. He is that one. He is that son of man. But can you understand their confusion when he gets to verse 25 then and says, but first I must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. It doesn't seem to line up with this prophecy about who this son of man that's bringing the kingdom in is going to look like to suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. Understand, put yourself in their shoes. The confusion is there, but this reality about who our king is, the suffering And the rejection is what makes Jesus the better king, the better kind of king, right? Because Jesus absolutely was this king full of power and authority that none could match or even rival, right? There in in, in verses 22 through 24, he's talking to the disciples and he says, there's going to come this day when people are going to say, there's the son of man. Look, there he is, right? There's the son of man. Here he is. He says, don't go out and follow them, right? When the Son of Man comes, it will be like lightning flashing in the sky. There will be none who can question when the Son of Man returns. He will come like lightning does. And he will be given in that moment as the Son of Man, the kingdom, the glory, and the dominion that was promised him, prophesied to him by the Father. There will be no doubts denying who the Son of Man is. All peoples from every nation and language, it says, will serve him. His dominion will be an everlasting dominion and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Revelation 19 verses 11 through 16 pictures Christ in this way. Just listen to the language it uses. Then I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse. The one sitting on it called faithful and true. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron." He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God, the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. That is the Son of Man that's coming. That is Jesus Christ. He's saying, I am that King. Awesome, mighty, powerful, glorious. Right? But before this, he says there in verse 25, he must suffer and be rejected. He must go to the cross and be, as a king, beaten and whipped. He has to bear a crown of thorns before he can wear the crown of many diadems. This king, King Jesus, he is not a king who is so separated and uncaring for his people that he never comes to them, never knows them, never is with them. He is not only the Lion of Judah, but the Lamb of of God. He is our great shepherd who will carry us in his arms into the kingdom, who will tend to our wounds, who will love us. He is the one who willingly took upon himself flesh that he might be tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. That he might take the wrath of the Father for our sins, that we might instead be given his righteousness. This is our king. The suffering servant spoken of in Isaiah 53 who had no form or majesty that we should look at him. 
and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was a chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. That is our king as well. That is our suffering servant of a king. We as the church have the greatest of kings in Christ Jesus. He is the one who has come to crush a serpent's head. He's the one who's come to free us from the bondage of and chains of our sin. Right? Not, not even death was strong enough to hold on to him. That's how powerful our God is. He is the one to whom all will bow one day. But he has come as well to wipe every tear from our eyes. He is the one that we can cast our cares and our sorrows upon because he cares for us. He is the one that we can hold fast to because he is the sure and steady anchor of our souls. In times of trial and testing, he is the one that we can cling to. This is our king. This is why he's a greater king than all the kings that we have ever known. All the kinds of kings we have ever seen. He is the greater king. And he has won us the greatest of victory, right? This brings us to our last point. Third way that we see the kingdom of God is greater than the one we could expect or imagine. And it's greater because in it, we are given a life of eternal joy, purpose, and fulfillment, right? In verses 26 through 37, um, Jesus lays out a pretty bleak outlook for the days of the Son of Man, for when he will return. He says it will be like the days of Noah, right, where Noah's family was saved from the flood as they got into the ark, but everyone else, it says, was destroyed. Or it will be like Sodom and Gomorrah, where Lot and his, some of his family were saved, But then fire and sulfur sulfur rained down and destroyed everything else. He says one person will be saved and the other lost. It will come suddenly and without warning. And on that day, he says, woe to the one who turns back. Woe to the one who has to go back and thinks that they need to get something out of their house or turn back from their field to go back and get their loved ones. And so I think the disciples rightly ask um, Jesus, Where's that going to be? Because I I don't want to be there. Like, I'll be anywhere else, not there. So where, Lord, is that going to be at the end of these verses, right? I think I'd be asking the same question. And Jesus looks at them and says, "Um, where is the wrong question? That last verse where it talks about where the corpse is, there the vultures will be. He's, He's using analogy and metaphor to explain. The question is not where, it's who. Who will that be? Because in the life and the heart and the soul that is dead, judgment will come. In the one who has not bowed down to the rightful king of this world, judgment will be given for their treason. The question is not where, but who. Remember, his kingdom has no boundaries. It is not bound to a place. It's bound to a people. That's the kingdom he's come to bring. So I would just ask you this morning to take a moment and be really honest with this text. Consider and hear the warning this morning for your own heart and for your own soul. This this judgment, the wiping out and destroying of all things, of all people that do not bow down to the king, is promised 
And he is the one who is faithful and true to his promises. And did you notice there that the people that were destroyed weren't condemned for doing anything necessarily wrong? As it explains these people in Sodom and Gomorrah and Noah's day, they were marrying and being given in marriage. They were eating and drinking. They were buying and selling, planting and harvesting. They were living lives with their families. They were working their jobs. They were doing all of the normal things. And so Jesus here is not condemning them for the wrong things they're doing. He says that the reason they will be judged is because they don't care. They don't care enough that the kingdom is coming, that the rightful king deserves to rule and reign in their hearts. They don't care. They totally missed it. They were too busy with the things in their life, in their world. And, and, you know, maybe they cared a little, but they didn't care enough to deal with it right then and there, right? Because he talks about these people that are like, oh, crud, it's coming. Here it is. I need to turn back and go get my stuff. I need to turn back and go get my things. But there's not time for that, Jesus says. There's not a moment for turning back. The things of this world are just too enticing, too enjoyable, too distracting for me to care about the king right now. I like my kingdom here. I like the things that I have here. I like the stuff and the people I have here more than I care about the kingdom. So much so that he says, remember Lot's wife who just turning around was enough for judgment to come upon her. It's not that she didn't know salvation was available. It, didn't, it wasn't even that she wasn't running towards salvation. But she turned around and wanted that enough. And then that was judged for turning around and wanting that more than she wanted the salvation of the king. Would you hear that warning in the, these verses this morning? Everything Jesus says about you could look the same as the person in the seat next to you or in the bed next to you or at work next to you, right? One lying in the bed will be taken and the other left. One at the grinding stone will be taken and the other left. It could look exactly the same as the person next to you. But Jesus says in verse 33, whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it. Is it the things in this life that you care more about or is it the king and the life and the kingdom to come that you care more about? Because he says, but in hope, whoever loses his life, and quoting himself from earlier in Luke, whoever loses his life will keep it. Do you hear the warning this morning, brothers and sisters? It doesn't have to look bad. We don't have to be doing evil question is, does this world and this kingdom have a greater hold on you than the kingdom that you're looking forward to that's coming, or the king that has already got a hold of you? The things of this world will perish, they will fade, they will rust, and they will die, but the kingdom, the kingdom of God, in this fading world, in these fading things, including your own life, they can be given a new and eternal purpose. That's what this kingdom comes to bring, is not to just leave us in the judgment of of the days of the Son of Man, but to remind us that if we bow down to the rightful king, we can have something so much better. We can escape the coming judgment and instead be given purpose eternally, right? Paul calls us in 2 Corinthians 5, he calls us ambassadors now for the king. 
That's the terminology he uses for those who bow down. We have now been given maybe not diplomatic immunity, right, um, per se, but we've been given some of his rule and his reign and his power to bring in to this world. So it now comes with us having eternal life. All that we do now comes with eternal purpose, eternal consequences, eternal action. That's what comes into our life. So, so while you may be going to your job today to grind out eight hours a day, five days a week so that I can have the money to have the things that I want so I can pay my bills so that we can go on vacation and that's it. You can be given now purpose to work that job, not just for yourself, but for the king. You can be given eternal purpose to work now inside of the kingdom and to bring the presence, excuse me, the presence and the power of God into the midst of your workplace. Your job can actually now have eternal purpose and consequence as you leave a legacy of working for the Lord and not unto men. Do you recognize now that as a, as a husband or wife, as a parent, as a student, as whoever you deem yourself to be, you now get to bring the midst of the kingdom into wherever you're at, right? In John 14, uh, verse 12, Jesus says this, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do and greater works than these will he do because I am going to the Father, right? It was good for Jesus to leave. I know that sounds crazy. And he says, you're gonna long for the days of the Son of Man, right? But it was good that Jesus left and we await those days because where Jesus was one man in one place at one time, able to do work in one area, he is literally given his power and his presence through his spirit eternally and, and completely to those who believe and obey in him. And so now there are millions who get to go to millions of places and millions of times and millions of areas to take and bring the kingdom into the midst of wherever we go. Right? That's what his spirit has given us the power to do. We actually now, the kingdom is in our midst because Jesus is in our midst, because his spirit is upon us, empowering us and strengthening us and sending us. Right? You and I have been given this power and this calling, as we heard last week in, in Matthew 8 or 28, 19 through 20. Right? That was the call, this mission to go. It's the same thing as this ambassadorship to go and tell about the king, to bring the kingdom that we might now, with Christ, usher in the kingdom. As we baptize people into the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, bringing them into the kingdom and teaching them the laws and the decrees of the king that we might live in accordance with the way he desires his kingdom to be ruled and to reign and to work for the good of all. And remember the promise at the end of that verse, lo, he is with us always, even into the end of the age. You doubt that the kingdom is in your midst, but Jesus promises you it is, because if it's in him and he's with you, then the kingdom is in our midst. We bring it with us wherever we go. Things in this world are not like they should be. You're right to feel the angst when, when death comes, when suffering and hardships and trial come. You're right to feel that, that it's not right, that things aren't going well. And it's because God's rule and reign no longer exists like it should. It's because of sin our sin, other sin, because of the subjection, it says in Romans 8, that God has placed upon this world because of sin, no matter where you see it, things aren't going well because sin exists. But by the power and the message of the gospel, 
brothers and sisters, we can see all things come under the rule of King Jesus. We have the opportunity to not just make this life right for ourselves, but to give it significance and meaning beyond anything this world can offer. We can give eternal purpose and meaning to what we do. The kingdom of God has no boundaries. It is not based upon national lines. It goes with you wherever you go, and it is ruled by a better kind of king than we could ever imagine. One who gives greater comfort, greater security, greater approval than all the people and things of this world ever could. That is his decree, that is his rule, that is his reign, and he has declared it to be true and so. So the question is this morning, are you in the kingdom? And are you living for its advancement? Or is your expectation maybe for what the kingdom should look like not matching up? Because like the Pharisees, you're looking for the wrong kingdom. Or maybe it's that you don't care that the kingdom is coming because this kingdom matters more to you. Because it has more meaning for you. Because you care more about this stuff than you do the king and his kingdom. Would you hear the warning this morning given in these verses by Christ? It will be like the days of Noah. It will be like Sodom and Gomorrah. It will come suddenly and it will come quickly and judgment will be given. And where the corpse is, there the vulture will be. Hear the warning this morning in that. The kingdom of God has come and is coming because Jesus Christ the king has come and is coming. And his kingdom is greater than any you or I could expect or imagine. So would you join me this morning in placing your life under the rule of the king that we might experience and know of his great kingdom. The rightful king has come and is coming. Let's bow to him in in prayer, all right? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we come to you and we thank you for uh, the work and rule and reign of, of your kingship. We thank you for the promised kingdom that is coming where every tear will be wiped away and, and death will be no more. Neither will there be mourning nor crying. Because we will see you face to face. Because we will know you and our faith will be made sight. So we pray come, Lord Jesus. But until you come, may we seek to bring your kingdom wherever we're at. You've promised that it is in your midst and so it is in our midst. The kingdom is here this morning. May we live like we belong in it, like we desire it, like we want to see it go forward. Would you give us hearts that desire that? And may it be motivated by the glory and the truth of who our king is what you've done for us, our lion and our lamb. We worship and we praise you this morning. Speak to us, send your spirit to us to convict and bring repentance and celebration and joy where you need. I pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.